Lego My Crypto. IRS seeks and then gets user records from a major cryptocurrency exchange. But was that legal and how does that impact traders going forward? Donna F. Hartle and Jake Nicholson from the law firm of Retzel and Andrus joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. It's always great being here with you. We're going to jump right into our topic today. But first, we need to thank our sponsor for keeping the lights on, Noda. Noda is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. How true? How true? Take advantage of Noda, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnoda.com forward slash legal to learn more. And that's notice spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. All right. Let's say hello to both of our guests. Yes, that's two guests today. We have Donna F. Hartle and Jake Nicholson from the law firm of Retzel and Andrus. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. This is going to be such an interesting case. And of course, we're going to be talking about this uh, Kraken cryptocurrency exchange that the IRS wanted to get user information from. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But, you know, I noticed in your bio, Donna and Jake, you know, Donna, you're a shareholder and uh, Jake, you're an associate at your firm. So why don't you give us uh, one or two lines on the type of work that you do? Why don't we start with Donna? Hi, Donna Hartle, shareholder at Retzel and Andrus. I uh, focus my practice on tax estate planning, probate, and nonprofit. And I am chair of the uh, tax subgroup at Retzel. Perfect. Perfect. All right. How about you, Jake? Yeah, Jake Nicholson. Uh, I'm an associate in the corporate tax and transactional group in Retzel's Cleveland office. Uh, So I handle all sorts of transactional and business advisory matters, but I have a particular interest in entrepreneurial and emerging business services, which has led me to follow cryptocurrency and the services popping up around it pretty closely. Well, that's great. So it sounds like I'm talking with the perfect people for our topic today. So that's great. So let me open up with this, uh, Donna and Jake. And so I want to start with just sort of a introductory question about cryptocurrency. And so I was thinking about how would I start this? And I think a little talk about the U.S. dollar as a lead in is is a good uh, place to start. And so, you know, our U.S. dollar, we use it obviously as a medium of exchange to to measure our labor efforts. And, you know, we effectively always trade our labor efforts. So, you know, Donna and Jake, I might make chairs and I'll make chairs and I'll exchange my efforts for maybe Donna's got a cheeseburger restaurant. So I'll make so many chairs and I'll go over and uh, exchange my efforts for Donna's cheeseburgers. And then Donna, you might buy widgets from Jake. He makes the best widgets in town. You make so many cheeseburgers, you go over with your efforts and you go over and get some of Jake's widgets. And so the problem with that is that I can only make so many chairs in a day. And uh, one of my chairs might be worth several of uh, Donna's delicious cheeseburgers, and it might buy less of Jake's widgets. And so we use money to kind of smooth that out. And effectively, money, you know, in terms of the U.S. dollar, measures our labor efforts, but also measures our economies relative to another, how much debt our countries might be taking on, the, the GDP, how much we're making per year, but essentially measures our efforts. So there's something pinned to the value of the dollar. So now I, I turn over to the cryptocurrency. Most of these, as I understand, are not pinned to the dollar or any specific currency. So I guess my first question goes to Jake. You know, What gives these cryptocurrencies their value and how do people make money in it? Yeah. So the overarching idea of why cryptocurrencies were created is to improve on that utility of the physical money printed by governments now that you're talking about. So hopefully one day, you'd be able to use them to buy most of the goods and services you use dollars to buy now, but in a way that's a little bit better suited for the digital age and transacting online as kind of the global economy becomes more interconnected. 
So that's the general idea. But because all of these different cryptocurrencies out there are trying to differentiate themselves from one another, they also have additional features programmed into them. The big ones being blockchain technology and decentralization that are supposed to make them more useful and more secure than the paper money we have now, while also giving the proponents of a certain cryptocurrency a way to say the one that they believe in is superior to the other cryptos and the one that everyone should be using. So to understand how people are making money off of all of this, it's best to think of each cryptocurrency right now, at least, as more like an individual stock rather than a type of usable money. Because right now, it's unclear which cryptos, if any of them, are going to become widely accepted in a meaningful way. So people are kind of picking their horses to bet on by buying more of a certain type of cryptocurrency that raises the price of it relative to the US dollar. And then those swings in demand for each is what creates opportunities to profit by buying and selling them. Okay. Now, when people do make money in the trading of cryptocurrencies, when do the profits become taxable events? Maybe walk us through that because, you know, unless it's physical, I think people sometimes have a hard time envisioning what that looks like. Yeah. So the IRS also, for the most part, treats cryptocurrencies like stocks. So when you buy a cryptocurrency, just like when you buy a stock, you don't have to pay taxes on it until you sell it. And then at that point, your profit or loss on the sale becomes part of your taxable income for the year, either at your normal income tax rate or the capital gains tax rate, depending on how long you held it for. Okay. Now, I think sometimes where this does get a little conflated is when people actually pay for something with cryptocurrency. So let's say my portfolio of crypto, let's say it's uh, Bitcoin or whatever. It's worth $1,000 more this week than last week. And I decide, you know what? I'm going to go buy some services online. I'm going to go buy, I don't know, maybe I'll buy one of your widgets, Jake, and I'll buy that online. And uh, when I do that, I'm buying it out of my profits. Now, when I do that and I do this exchange through Bitcoin, isn't that purchase because I'm now kind of locking in again and exchanging it? Isn't that becoming a taxable event? It is. So it's becoming a taxable event with regard to whatever profits or loss you took on your original Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency investment. So say you had $10 worth of Bitcoin and the value increases to $15, and then you want to use those $5 of profits only to go out and buy lunch today. Regardless of whether you pay the restaurant in Bitcoin directly by giving them a third of your total Bitcoin holdings, which is equal to that $5 profit you made on your Bitcoin, or if you go trade in that Bitcoin $4 and then pay the restaurant with a $5 bill. Either way, that $5 of pure profit on your crypto needs to be reported as taxable income. All right. Now, Donna, there's all kinds of investments out there, but uh, suddenly the IRS just seems so much interested in cryptocurrencies. Why is that? Well, I'm not sure I would call it sudden. I just think it's becoming much more public now than before. Okay. Uh, the, the IRS has slowly been looking at cryptocurrencies. And enough people are making enough money at it that it stands to reason that some aren't being reported. And there's enough potential money there in unreported income that the IRS is now looking into it. I think another issue is that it has been as much of a learning curve for the IRS as it has for many of us. And they needed to get enough experts on their own end because they can't audit what they can't understand. Well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's obviously a new technology. And of course, blockchain, you try to explain that to uh, anybody and their, their, their eyes glaze over. So well, let's talk about this uh, recent decision. There was a U.S. District Court, Northern District of California, approved an IRS request to execute what a, uh, it's a John Doe summons. I'm not sure what that is, but hopefully, uh, Jake, you can tell us a little bit about that. So tell us what happened in this case. Why is the IRS moving forward? What specifically are they looking for with this request for records on the Kraken cryptocurrency exchange? Sure. So 
in the IRS's efforts to find these underreported gains, they've basically decided to go right to the source by investigating the activity on cryptocurrency exchanges themselves. That's where people are getting dollars for their crypto, and thus that's where taxable events are actually occurring, right? So one of the biggest exchanges out there is a website called Kraken. And recently, the IRS identified some individual users on Kraken who, through no fault of the website Kraken itself, were failing to report their gains on their income taxes. Since the IRS knew that some people were doing it on this website, they made the logical assumption that there are probably others on the platform who are underreporting too. So they went to the district court and asked for what's called the John Doe summons that would compel the Kraken to produce all of its records for U.S. citizens who had made more than $20,000 worth of trades since 2016. And they did that with the hope that they could sift through all these records and then find gains that hadn't been reported. So they essentially went to the court and said, hey, we know that some people on this platform are not reporting their income, and we think there are probably more people doing the same thing, but we can't find that without more information. And the court turned around and said, we agree, go ahead and use the John Doe summons to make crack and give you all the information you need. Now, when I read that, the first couple of words there that entered my head was Fourth Amendment. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I was trying to come up with a good analogy because I think the physical analogies sort of help with this. And I was thinking, like, you know, if I was an investigator out there and I was driving by and I, and I suddenly came across this new apartment building and, you know, it has hundreds of units in there. And I'm thinking, you know statistically speaking, there's probably a violation of, you know, discriminatory housing practices going on in there. I don't have any proof. I haven't seen it happen, but just given statistics, if I go in there and, you know, rifle through enough records, I bet I find at least one. That's not allowed. You know, the Fourth Amendment protects us from unreasonable searches and seizures. So walk me through how this is not a Fourth Amendment violation. Well, that's a great question. The recipients of John Doe summons may make Fourth Amendment objections that the summons is overbroad or indefinite, although I have to tell you those objections are rarely successful. People do raise Fourth Amendment objections uh, to these kind of summons because the Fourth Amendment provides for the right of the people to be secure in their houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable search and seizures. And it protects U.S. citizens from unreasonable government intrusion into their private lives. So. The argument is that they can't do it. But what happened was with these John Doe summons is they were amended in 2019 to be more restrictive and not to be too overbroad. So some of the objections that were made prior to 2019 can no longer be made if the government complies with the new rules that were amended about the restrictiveness of what goes into a John Doe summons. So if this happens to me, Donna, or any other law-abiding citizen, what can they do about it? You know, I don't want the government poking around in my financial records, you know, unless they have some probable cause to believe I broke the law. I don't want them sifting around in there and knowing all about me. What are your options? Not many. Uh, <laughs> in theory, you have the ability to go to court, object to the summons, ask for the summons to be quashed as to your information for reasons that it did not comply with the John Doe summons procedures. But the reason I say that it's it's not a great option is that it's not an inexpensive process. Okay. And uh, this last question is uh, for both you, Donna, and Jake. You know, what is the moral of the story here? You know, what kind of information or advice can we leave the cryptocurrency traders out there to, you know, make the best of these things that uh, seem like they're just in large part out of their control when they make these trades? Well, I think the first thing that they should do, because this is only going to have more scrutiny. If you go back and look at what happened with the uh, Swiss bank accounts 
and the offshore bank accounts. This is the same thing they're doing from 15 years ago about looking at uh, offshore bank accounts as now they're doing with cryptocurrency. So beware, this is not going away. So my, my advice is keep meticulous records of everything associated with the transactions you've worked on, including all blockchain information. Make sure it's reported on your returns for those that already filed their 2020 returns. There's a box now on the first page that says, do you have any cryptocurrency? And there's not a de minimis limitation on that. It says, do you have any? And so you need to make sure you check that because if you think back 20 years, the question that got people was, do you have any foreign bank accounts? And there was a little box that had to be checked. So be very careful and make sure if you have any cryptocurrency, you check that box and make sure everything is reported on your returns. Last, I think you should consult with your attorneys, preferably your attorneys at Brutzel and Andrus. And your tax accountant with further questions. Jake, anything else? I would like to echo everything you've said. I think that, you know, the John Doe summons issue that's becoming a little bit more common and the general crackdown on crypto reporting kind of just highlights the friction that's going to exist between these decentralized cryptocurrencies and the governments that are trying to make sure that all the reporting is done in line with the laws they've had on the books for all these years. So Keeping up with that and having an attorney and an accountant on your side who can also be keeping up with that and advise you is really, really important. Well, Donna and Jake, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed our conversation. So did I. Thank you. Thanks so much. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like today's episode, please leave us as many stars as the law will allow on your favorite podcasting app, unless you think the IRS is watching. One more thank you to our sponsor, Noda. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. And that's Nota spelled N-O-T-A. And last but never least, thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN audio crew for their continued hard work. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Cluddy. Have a great day, everybody.